Let's go. Master of all things tabletop. With the Paladins of Podcast. They ruin the games you love by talking rules that suck, how to build kick-ass encounters, destroy worlds, and really get your players invested. So go ahead and throw that fistful of dice at someone. Because we're going on a side quest. I forgot to say that. It's all right. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Side Quest with your paladins, a podcast, Robin Eli. How are you doing, buddy? I am doing great. Although I am back from vacation, so that's a little sad. Uh, I would much rather be on vacation. I think that is the American dream, isn't it? To be on vacation 24-7? Uh, yes, uh, I think so. I think so. And man, it's it's a tough it's tough to adjust from siestas and long meals and one dollar beers to being uh, you know, back on the work grind. Yeah, but the time away is always necessary. It's always needed. I'm glad you had a good time. Yeah. Oh, and so many different adventure ideas. So yeah. many different, especially because I got messaged and I got solicited to write a short adventure for Hackmaster. So that just inspired me more. In addition, I was in a place with beautiful castles and uh, beautiful scenery. And now I also got to write some adventure stuff. Now, I got some questions, if you don't mind, and uh, let me know if you can or cannot mention them, or if you do or do not want to mention some of the answers here. Uh, let's start off with some of the uh, the basics. You said Hackmaster. Is that for a specific edition? Fifth edition, I think, is uh, their fifth most... Fifth edition, so the, the current edition. Okay. So. All right. And that's the game that you primarily play, right? Fifth edition yeah, Hackmaster? Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. All right. Uh, so... For those of our listeners who weren't aware uh, while you were on vacation, you're actually in Portugal, correct? Yeah, a little bit of Portugal, uh, the Azores Islands, and kind of on the mainland, and then okay. uh, a stopover in Iceland. That really seems like it's incredibly far away from each other. Uh, yes. Yes. Oh, just saying, like... To put it in terms that Rob would understand here, but like if I was going to go take a trip to Florida, I'd make a quick stop in Idaho. Well, luckily, the Idaho in this situation, Iceland, Iceland Air, which is amazing to fly on, uh, they also offer like they they want to attract tourism, um, yeah. and so they offer stopover layovers in and extended layovers in in Iceland. Okay, it, it kind of like if you take it, I think if you take a layover there, it cheapens the flights. Or something oh. like that, but wow, um, yeah, it's basically a wash because Iceland is also very expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, <laughs> if it would, it sucks because Portugal is very cheap. So then you go to Iceland and you're like, oh my god, we just spent so much money, right? Um, but beautiful, especially as someone who loves geology, Iceland was gorgeous. Do you get to take any volcano rocks? Um, I think I brought back a little, a little chunk of basalt. Um, but nice. I, I don't, I don't necessarily need to collect rocks. They're fine where they are. Um, that's that's fair. I, I, I like can... going to places and like I like looking at glaciers, but I don't want to mm-hmm. go on the glaciers. Like, you know, 
I can observe. Hey, I think that's probably the most respectful way to do it. All of our interactions with some of these natural wonders are really destroying them, and the only way to preserve our planet is to watch from a distance, yeah? Yeah, when you, like, if you ever go on a hike or if you see those, people make those beautiful little rock piles. Yeah. Those are not great for local ecosystems. Don't no. do it. Yeah. Okay. Push them over. Oh, yeah. okay. Here in the Pacific Northwest, they are salamander habitat. So. Oh, I didn't know that. Yep. I didn't know that. That's cool. So you said that you picked up some inspiration on some of your adventure writing that you wanted to do. Care to be able to share anything, or you want to keep it under wraps until you're able to get this uh, pushed all the way through to the end of publication? Well, like some of it is there's, there's just so much history in, especially in Portugal, in, mm -hmm. in Iceland, because the Vikings came over, you know, on their way to discover America. Um, so there's there's lots of like old Viking ruins in Iceland, um, but there's a lot of ruins in mainland Portugal, um, and some of it's just like super, like just embedded into like how their society is. Like you'll come across like the cities instead of having like cement uh, or like like just boring ass sidewalks, um, it's all cobbled or made by like individual stonemasons. Really? Or they'll have like building codes where they can't like these these buildings are like wall to wall to wall to wall and they were built ages ago and you can't actually change the fronts. You can just like gut them and rebuild them from the inside. Hmm. So or you'll see like a Roman aqueduct. It's just still just built in part like someone's hanging their laundry right next to like a, an old <laughs> aqueduct. Um, oh, that's cool. Or, you like look out in the field and there's a like a a mayhir, just a giant or like a a stonehenge just sitting in the middle and right next to in the field next spot next door there's someone with a tractor like plowing their field it's just well, and whereas this is kind of new to you it's everyday life for them yeah so I, I like that difference between the two, especially as you put it in the idea for uh, mentioning adventures and writing adventures. I mean, as you describe certain things, you can put the history and lore and how these statues or relics or icons have just become embedded in the geography where people who are locals no longer even see them. Like, oh, yeah, that's just a magical statue. No big deal. But adventurers. It's new to them. Like part of it is also that in the US we just don't really have like architecture isn't seen as an art. And over there everything is made out of stone. And so they've got mm -hmm. these artisan stonemasons, excuse me, who uh, will carve just beautiful pieces in, in stone. Like I, I came across this pillar in a botanical garden that had like four different uh, little gargoyles at each corner and each one had like a scroll in their claws oh. with a different symbol on it. And like one of the gargoyles even had someone had put a flower in their mouth. Nice. It was just, a, just like a, just to stumble upon it in kind of this jungle of a botanical garden. It totally felt like if I had known the proper stones to press or if I had placed a flower in a certain mouth, I might be able to like open up the crypt below. Like it, there was just a, a hundred different examples of, of things like this, or you go into a church 
Its walls are completely tiled. Um, it just felt like there was lots of lots of room for secret doors. I like that. I like that. It feels very uh, National Treasure-esque, Indiana Jones-esque. Um, that's fun. Those adventure-style uh, films or imagery, I've always really enjoyed. Unfortunately, I don't travel outside of the, uh, the country very often. That's okay. The U.S. <laughs> has, I mean, we're such a huge country. There's so many different biomes and places that you can visit. It's just you're seeing, I mean, this isn't a bad thing. You're just seeing a lot more... You're going to see a lot more natural beauty as opposed to, like, the, the human history. Mm -hmm. I mean, in Europe and in other places, you've just got, like, you'll have just buildings built on top of each other. Yeah. It's hard to find over here. We're, we're a, young, a young country. Right. Now, if I remember correctly, though, the there are at least two places. I want to say uh, Chicago and... Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Washington. One of them, one of those two other ones, have uh, had major fires or floods that destroyed huge portions of the city. The only thing that they could do is rebuild on top. So there yeah. are... Yeah, Seattle has a little bit of that. Yeah, accessible. Um, that's still like within the last, I mean, yeah. within the last 100, 200 years... Yep. I mean, over here, over there, you can easily stumble upon uh, a piece of stone that's a thousand years old. Yes, and I, I really enjoy that. I think that, uh, I think that it's, it's always been something that's fascinated me because I've always loved the idea of being an archaeologist, primarily because of Indiana Jones and the adventures you could go on. Uh, digging in the dirt, not really my favorite thing, but it'd be cool nonetheless. So. I like that. And you're right. Adventures that you can base those things around of and the things that you can describe to new players uh, when you build out those specific adventure styles are fun. I like it. I'm excited to see what you develop for 5th edition Hackmaster. Yeah. Uh, the, the one I'm working on is inspired by uh, we were in Iceland at the, the, the place where the, the two, the North American and the European plates are separating just uh, the great separation um but it was an, an old viking uh or old icelandic meeting spot where all the tribes would gather um and we were looking out and we we're looking out over a over a, a mountain and my brother goes oh that mountain looks like it should have a, a top but it's just all clouds and then we were there long enough that the clouds moved on and it, the mountain was just completely flat. Really? Uh, yeah. So I was I was like, huh, that is that's very interesting. I think I'm going to steal that. Yeah, that is highly interesting. Did they uh did you figure out why it was flat? Like what happened? Oh, um I'm I'm pretty sure it was a volcano that blew its top. Um there's Fair. a surprisingly large number of flat a lot of mountains are flat over there, just because of how they're formed and the volcanic activity oh. that they have there. I did not so. know that. I'm always used to seeing volcanoes uh, look very, I wouldn't say flat, but they are definitely wide-brimmed at the top, semi-jagged, um, some form of gaping hole. Iceland has huge <laughs> volcanoes. Like, they've got something like 130 volcanoes. Wow. And like 30 of them are active. 
Wow. But like the the volcanoes can stretch in from like one like in width or everyone to measure side to side, like mm-hmm. on the horizon, they met, they stretch for hundreds of kilometers, um, especially when they start having like side magma chambers. Right. Enormous. That's incredible. Uh, Speaking of Iceland and volcanoes, Journey to the Center of the Earth is one of my favorite stories. Oh, I did not know that. <laughs> That's all right. Not a lot of people I think do. I've only seen the movie. Uh, really? Um, that's that's fair. I actually I read the book every uh, I don't know, twelve months or so. <laughs> every every year or so. It's not a super long book, but I really enjoy that uh, that book. I've always loved the idea of heading down a volcano and checking out ancient. That's civilizations. a Brandon Fraser movie. Yes, old one too. Before <laughs> uh, Hollywood abandoned him, but Brandon Fraser's coming back, and I'm I'm excited for him. You should watch the whale. Phenomenal. I have heard really good things, but I haven't taken the time to do it. Oh my goodness, that is it's a whole other thing. But it's a phenomenal uh, piece that you should definitely watch it. Yeah, I'll see what I can do about the, this weekend. So, I uh, and now you were approached to write this adventure. Does that mean that they're going to handle all the publications and everything? Like you're going to hand off a document to them, and they package it nicely and distribute it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, within the Hackmaster community, so not that much, but uh, but still, all that's handled outside of you, and uh, that's nice. And I ask because we just released Legend of the Pharaoh King, uh, Epic Table Games' very first adventure, <clears throat> and we had to do all of it. And I'll tell you. Building the adventure, writing the adventure, editing, play testing, all of that was a breeze considering the difficulty in figuring out how to publish or how to get it to print or where to put it. That was the most difficult process for all of that. Where uh, do you have it on drive through RPG? No, no. And this is what I learned for anybody who's interested in publishing content. And this is an incredible amount of information that I'm going to condense uh, into kind of like a paraphrased version. So Legend of the Pharaoh King was a 5E compatible adventure. Now, due to intellectual property, we still can't actually write the name of the game on the, uh, the product. We have to refer to it as something that people recognize it as without specifically calling out to it. Wait, you can't print Legend of the Pharaoh King? You can't claim that that's the title of it? No, I can't say that it's compatible with Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, oh, oh yeah. (laughs) So that's one of the issues that the OGL license uh, had. That's why there were so many different workarounds and Creative Commons. They allow it, but they don't... uh, they don't like it. They just tolerate it. So with the licensing restrictions and everything, if you use the Creative Commons licensing, or if you decide to still use the OGL licensing, you cannot post it through any site like DriveThruRPG or DMs Guild. Now, DriveThruRPG no longer handles any of the content for 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons. That is all 
then moved over to DM Guild, which uses another license that is not Creative Commons or OGL. Oh, interesting. So back when the OGL issue happened in January of this year, I decided I didn't really want to write any adventures for D&D. I had actually stopped writing a lot of them and decided that I was going to wait for the ORC license to come out, see what games were available, and start switching my tactics. Um, but after the Creative Commons uh, compromise and some of the rollback that they decided to do with the OGL, I was like, all right, you know what? We're going to push some of the content I was developing out because it's so close to being done. I'm not going to leave something half finished. Uh, so as I got to that point, when I got to publishing... I decided not to go to DMs Guild because that allows all of the content that we create as individuals to be used by uh, the parent company and they can take your work, republish, etc. You give up a lot of your ownership of the product. This is where you have to determine if you really want your content to get out and be known for that content before uh, it may be taken and reused or if you want to kneecap yourself and look for different markets. And we decided to look for different markets because I decided to put the downloadable on uh, on our Etsy page, try to capture that market. And I decided to publish through self-publishing with, uh, with Amazon's KDP, which allowed us to print copies at a reasonable price. Now, doing both of those allowed for a few things that I did not expect uh, to have to research, such as ISBN numbers barcodes, publishing rights, etc. Um, Amazon KDP will give you your own free ISBN, which is awesome, but it's only available and usable with a lot of Amazon products, which means you can't list it on Barnes & Noble's website, for example. Barnes & Noble allows you to publish books through them, but it's only available through Barnes & Noble. If you have a universal ISBN, it costs around $125. You can put it just about anywhere. Um, but then you also generally have to carry some form of um, inventory, which I don't necessarily want to have boxes and boxes and boxes upon this, uh, this adventure sitting in my basement. I want them out in the world. The hardest part was figuring out what I felt was the best opportunity to get the material out into the world with the least amount of risk uh, for everybody involved. And for those of you who are looking at writing adventures and publishing adventures, these are things that you're going to have to consider where and how you're going to get your um, license from, where you're going to put your product, and how you're going to distribute your product. Because as a first-time publisher, unlike Eli, who gets approached by Hackmaster, most of us do not. <laughs> so, Well, it, you know, it's the disadvantage is that it is... I mean, I love Hackmaster, so it's yeah. not a disadvantage for me, but it, the disadvantage is if I did want to break into the, the real writing community is, you know, how many play, people play Hackmaster compared to how many people play 5th edition, the largest gaming, um, which I mean, it does mean that there's, you know, a smaller slice of the pie, but it also means there's less competition. Right. But the additional benefit to this is that you get the writing credit, even if it's for a different game. You have the professional writing credit now for a published adventure. And that will help break down doors into other gaming systems if that's the way you want to go. So what we're <laughs> saying is 
find indie games and small games and get highly involved in their communities and absolutely pitch your ideas. Absolutely. And if you're interested in publishing or writing adventures, just do it. Like it's not hard. Why did you write a fifth edition game, Rob? Can I not talk about that? You even play Pathfinder. Can I not talk about that? (laughs) Like I I love Pathfinder. I, I understand. Um, but fifth edition has the largest market and fifth edition also allows for the, uh, I want to say the lowest bar of entry when it comes to writing. And I say that because while it's not super difficult to write for, um, it does allow a lot of freedom and creativity because it's streamlined so many different things. Like, as you write down certain aspects of character or monster creation, uh, you get to name your uh, abilities, etc., and how they work, and keep them in a generalized framework, and they don't break the game. But with a game... Why, why can't you yeah. do that for other games? Like, Why can't you do that for Pathfinder? Pathfinder is incredibly crunchy. It's got rules for nearly everything. So if you're going to put something new in the game, you have to make sure it's going to work with a larger pool of potential mechanics. Excuse me. And having to cross-reference a lot of that is super difficult. So as I mentioned, when we did our adventure, we used a lot of the uh, the OGL. Now, the OGL is <clears throat> allowing us to reference certain things. We're able to... Uh, actually, we should be able to reference just about everything. But we kept all the things that we could utilize that were covered under the OGL. So... All the monsters generally come out of the monster manual or uh, in the book uh, where we can cite our references without issue. If we created a monster, it just had to follow a pretty specific formula, use certain terms, etc. Because we were only using base rules. Yeah. I, you know, I, at least for Hackmaster, that's one thing I do enjoy. I mean, while there is no templates... I mean, I personally think that when you're writing your fan things, they should try to introduce new things and new aspects. I I love if I if I pick personally if I pick up an adventure and it adds nothing to the game that it's it's part of. Like, there's no new magic items, if there's no new abilities. If you're kind of creating a setting, mm-hmm. like if if it's got no new monsters that interact with the players in new ways. I, I, I'm just not a fan. Like, I love when, like, it doesn't even have to be much, but, you know, you introduce trolls, maybe there's a new troll variant. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, or you introduce, uh, yeah, magic items, monster yep. variants. Love that. New traps. Yep. I mean, even just new traps. Perfect. Give me it. And see, that's that's what I was looking at. And I found it was easier to do with 5th edition than it was for other systems again primarily i wasn't fighting with a million mechanics such as pathfinder first edition or even D 3035 etc um they had so much content that you had to really stretch outside to uh bring in something new but five why, was... why do you why do you have to conform to like their their strict mechanics that they published like, why can't your abilities that you create for your monster be entirely unique to your monster? Uh, 
again, I think that comes down to a general use of deci- decision to um, let it be able to balance itself, in my opinion, balance itself. Um, creating certain things. I mean, we know that dark vision works in 30, 60, 90, 120 feet, etc. Or ability to dimension door once per round, recharge rates for breath weapons, etc. We have all of those different aspects. Um, breaking those molds is okay, but the entirety of the game is built around certain molds. Um, stepping outside of a lot of that, you can really unhinge uh, the game, especially if they're going to take what you've developed as a third-party publisher and throw it into something that's, I'll say, completely first-party. Yeah, I mean, I one, <laughs> if I if I create something that's entirely unique and they throw it into a first their to their product, I feel honored. Sure. But the second thing is, if I make something completely broken and they throw it into their first party product mm-hmm. <laughs> take that that's all I, I even better um, right and i i am of the opinion that you should always break molds at least well like especially adventures or settings you should always break a mold at least once yeah yeah i'm not gonna say there's something wrong with that and what i did with legend of the pharaoh king was um you know i i really overcharged a few of the monster abilities uh, I made them ridiculous. I wanted to create an adventure that really called back to deadlier style adventures in earlier versions of the game. I wanted to create something that was similar to Super Dungeons or Mega Dungeons, where really the uh, the death felt eminent. Um, instead of making it where every door you go through is going to kill you, I really relegated it down to a few monsters and a few unusual traps. But other than that, it's just a standard fair adventure. And I remember talking about this, I explicitly said I wanted something semi-middle of the road for the first entry. I wanted something that was a little far-fetched in one aspect and a little reserved in the other. And I think the Fed- the Legend of the Pharaoh King had did that. Um, the monsters and some of the legendary items that I created for the game are way outside of power scale for typical 5th edition. Like, they are... In terms of earlier editions, they are epic scale. I mean, legendary doesn't even captivate the abilities that they have. I am not surprised. Hey, I mean, come on. Most of my games, you end up running with gods and <laughs> screwing shit up. So uh, I had to throw that flavor in there. That's why I'm not surprised. Well, it's it's breaking the general mold. And I want, like, I wanted a deadly adventure. Um, it was fun to write. It was, uh, it was a little bit of work, but again, the hardest thing, the most difficult thing was just the publishing aspect. Um, in fact, even submitting it to the U S copyright office was relatively easy. $65 in an upload on the website. Oh, I wouldn't have even thought of that. Right. So, I mean, we went legit from a to B to C all the way down the line. Too um, legit, too quick. For sure. And it actually, I guess, first released an announcement here is it kickstarted our hope and idea to develop a second adventure and build an entire world for 5th edition. And then my imagination took run of that, and we're also building a new campaign setting. For 5th edition? Yeah. 
campaign. Are set. you basing it on Animar? No. No. Uh, I don't want to say too much about the campaign setting yet, but it's nostalgic of 80s. Um, it's nostalgic of epic power metal uh, meshed in with uh, the fantasy world setting. I dig power metal. Uh, what was that? There was a there was a game voiced by Black Jack. Jack Black. Black Jack. Brutal Jack Legend. Black. Brutal Legend. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Yep. I got a Black I, Jack. Jesus. I got like seven of the races uh, converted out, done up, and I was like, Brutal Legend. I mean, I, I got electric guitars in Middle Earth at this point. So. Awesome. Just what Middle Earth always needed. I think so. It's it's crazy. It's over the top. It fits our general theme. It's uh, it's been incredibly fun, super colorful. I'm actually really excited to finish it. Um, but that's two projects out still. Speaking of Lord of the Rings, yes. Um, I mean, I, I was on the airplane. They had the Hobbits. I watched Riddles in the Dark. Riddles Amazing. in the Dark. The scene where Bilbo, uh, the 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 whole party is captured by the Goblin Kings. Okay. And the, the, the dwarves all escape. Bilbo falls down a hole, runs into Gollum, and riddles with him to steal the ring. Mm-hmm. Just an awesome scene. And I was wondering, how often do you do either solo adventures, or how often do you pull, like, when you have someone that's separated from the party... Do you, opt, do you pull them into other rooms so they don't know? Do you do it at the same table? Do you, do you, does your party split the party often? No. And we actually talked about this a few episodes ago. Uh, <clears throat> you suggested that I do split the party. You had mentioned that your party was split as they crossed a uh, lava vent chasm and the uh, stone structure bridge had broken and they decided to climb down, scroll up, climb back up. Yeah, I do remember that. That very next game that I had, I separated my party, and the one half fought tooth and nail to get back to their other half. They refused to split. So my players do not like to split the party. When something happens and they are split, and I have a one-on-one scenario, because I use the envelope system, I don't have to take them into a separate room. I could just write down something on the envelope, uh, put it in, and send it back their way. Uh, it allows me to stay at the table, stay engaged with everybody, and stay focused, um, and allow things to happen a little bit slower, but still in real time. I, so. I'm still so split. I love doing like individual one-on-ones mm-hmm. with the whole group, so they can kind of like see it all. God, do I love it's it's so fun, especially in in person. When I'm running in person, I love. The act of like standing up and being, you come with me into the other room for a second, and then you actually physically leave. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like it could add so much to like the, the, the table chemistry, and I think it's worth it. Um, I, I had a DM who did that frequently, very often, and I enjoyed it until the table became disorganized as a group of players and we came disorganized because there was no central figure to really lead us uh or guide us anywhere 
uh, it allowed us a chance to break immersion, talk amongst ourselves, bullshit. Uh, and then it was very hard to pull us all back at times. Um, but everybody gripes that the distraction of that, uh, not being able to pull back into the game, uh, is upsetting. So, yeah, uh, one of the reasons. Does, like, yeah, I think it does need to be handled correctly. But I think, I mean, for for some games, I, I think that it can also offer, you know, because sometimes offer table, tables to a chance the rest of the table gets up or uses the bathroom, uses the facilities. Yep. Um, and I also think that that's kind of important. So, like, giving people breaks can lead them to be more focused when you're actively, like, playing. So, I think encourage, like, either taking them or encouraging, like, when you pull someone aside for other people to take a break um, can also be helpful. Um, yep. Players don't know what's good for them. Drink some water. Right? Right? Better than Doritos and Mountain Dew, which is pretty much the staple of every table. You know, as long as someone doesn't bring an entire tray of weed brownies, then I think your table's good. Fair enough. I Speak mean, that's a good table. It's just, <laughs> that can be dangerous. Right? Now, speaking of snacks and table gaming. <laughs> Ooh, I've got the munchies. Well, I'm just curious. I mean, we know that Gen Con is coming up. It's less than 60 days away. Ooh. And as promised... I signed up for one of your Hackmaster games. I know. I'm so excited. I I'm am. also not excited to survive off of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for a week. as my tradition. Well, does that mean, because I think it's an early morning game. I want to say it's like Friday or Saturday at 9 a.m. And Love morning games. I don't know if you selected that time, but if it was <laughs> you, I am not going to tell you how disappointed I am that this is the only time I had available. Um, I can't remember how it's so long ago. And right. honestly, I, I love playing games at any time of the day. And if it was me who actually scheduled the games, I probably would have made it at 8 a.m. I'll have to double check. Worse. Yeah, I'll have to double check what time it is. Anyhow, do oh, you I didn't schedule them. I, this Fair. is the great part about being with, like, I'm with a group of other Hackmaster GMs. And one guy just handles it all. And all I have to do is run games, at least at Gen Con. So, should I bring you like a breakfast sandwich or something? Oh no no no! I'm I am, I'm well enough fed. Um, uh, I sh I'll, I think I'll have a water bottle at nine a.m. That's when I'm doing all right. Uh, okay, okay. So stop back by and just drop off a bottle of water to you. <laughs> that's that's always a good idea. Yeah, stay hydrated. Um, but uh, I. I'm always a proponent of eating well, except at conventions. Eat like crap at conventions? Eat don't eat like at all? crap at conventions, or don't eat at all. I, that's the hard part, is remembering to eat. Uh, yeah. Yeah, now, as a as a convention, oh, yeah. For Gen Con, highly recommend this. Get those get those apps. Have you, you seen those electrical scooter mobobber thingamabobs? No. You know, like, you have an app, you scan an electric scooter, and you get to use an electric scooter for, like, like rent an electric scooter oh, thing. Yeah. For conventions, I highly recommend them. Okay. Because if you're in the convention center, mm -hmm. you could wait an hour and a half at like the like half an hour. Just you could wait some obscene amount of time at like the food vendors. Even at the, like the food court that Gen Con has, it's just mm -hmm. there's seventy thousand people. Right. 
hop on one of those little electric scooters, cruise down the street for five minutes, and just stop at any Indianapolis restaurant or any restaurant in no wait time. I mean, the five minutes that you zipped over there. Let me get some shit for this one, because I'm going to say stop at any place except for the Steak and Shake right next to the convention center. I I, I mean, I, I've never been to Steak and Shake, so... I don't suggest you start with the one that I went to <laughs> in the, next to the convention center. It was horrible. Um, oh, there's this really good Italian deli. Luckily, I don't remember the street, so you're gonna have to give it a name. We have we have listeners who are like, I'm gonna go to Gen Con and I need to find this Italian restaurant. They're gonna spend all day looking for an Italian restaurant. Well, you head south uh, until you hit a T, and then you head west, east, east. You hit a main road; it's right there. (laughs) It's the best instructions I can give. (laughs) That is not helping. Thank God the city does not change roads very often. Yeah, I know it's a little south, little southeast, um, little Italian place. They've got like, you know, it's kind of like the cafeteria style. They got good sandwiches. Rock on. So as we're talking about the convention, and as you are sitting behind the DM screen, uh, whereas I get to go just be an attendee uh, and hopefully be able to talk to quite a few different people while I'm there. Uh, do you have any? Uh, recommendations or words of advice for those who are attending either for the first time or long, long-term returning attendees. I mean, it's definitely set aside time to go to the, like to the vendors hall mm-hmm. more time than you expect. And I would say try every demo you see in the vendors hall. Okay. I, I've just, I've discovered some wonderful gains by doing that. And Usually, a lot of the, like a lot of the companies will do like if you play in the demo, surprise, you get a discount on oh. buying something, and then you can also see if like it's even a game you want to play. Right, it just gives you great interactivity. Uh, um, also, just like chat with them, especially if it's a game you really like. Um, I, I feel like that's how I got ingrained and in, with like the Hackmaster community is you just. Just show up and you chat and you like, you know, ask their opinions, ask if they need any help. Like, you know, hey, is there anything that would help the community? And then they're like, well, we really love people to run games. And then you run games and they're like, oh, yeah, that's good advice. I like that. I also agree completely with make sure you leave time for the vendor hall. Um, they're huge. I mean, massive no matter if it's gen con or origins or whatever game convention you go to there are always a lot of vendors especially because even though when we look at it we're thinking tabletop rpgs there are board games card games collectible trading card games etc so whatever your interest is in this hobby it's going to have a large presence somewhere um it's always make friends yeah I mean, it's crowded, full of people. Make friends with the vendors. Make friends with the random people you bump into. Make friends with the cosplayer that you keep kicking on the heels and accidentally step on their long jacket. Everybody. Leave time to, like, go, they usually have those free game rooms. Yeah. You can just show up and play games. There's usually, like, some people show up and they're like, hey, we're four people. We want to play a four-people game. But um, especially, like, Asmodee, they often have, hey, we need another player. 
stop by, play a game, meet some people. I mean, I've that's where I've really made the best RPG connections, just just playing games and actually interacting with the people that play them. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's great because Gen Con, for example, has an event schedule. And my big piece of advice is don't book all of your events back to back to back to back for the entirety of your stay. Um, you're going to find that you are running between so many events and the area is so large that it's hard to really get places. You're going to get burnt out. So also make sure you have breaks of periods where you do nothing but just leisurely explore and wander. To counter that. Yeah. While you should set aside one day or a block of time, I recommend booking everything back to back all the time. When I attend conventions, I cram it to the gills. I just, I, I mean, I'm also an extrovert. I like feed off of energy from, you know, social energy. I'm like an energy vampire. Um, Sucking energy from other people. Yeah. Um, but, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I, I mean, I just love it. I personally want to be there from, like, as soon as the convention hall opens until... I want to be gaming until I have to fall over and mm -hmm. fall asleep. And then I want to wake up in way too little time and do it all over again. Now, see, when you schedule your games, are you scheduling games, or do you also go check out the seminars? Oh, I that is one thing that I don't do a lot. I almost never attend seminars. See, I go to a lot of the seminars. I love going to like the writer symposiums. I love, I love hearing some history. I like why TSR failed or, you know, why three, five was so successful. The writer symposium on how to write pulp fiction and noir books. Um, so when you schedule all of those, you're just sitting there listening to people drone on for a while. It can get boring. It's like a lecture hall for 14 hours. Yeah. See, I mean, like, I feel like I can read those. Um, and I feel like I get the most honest and, you know, reading, like hearing someone speak to an entire hall about why TSR failed, you know, not my style, but running into that one guy who really has an opinion on it and hear it like to have that, like the end of your game, you're like, you're picking up like your game. And then all of a sudden you've just got this, one of these gamers ranting about something. I'll listen to those. I love those. Every gamer has a rant. And yes. some of them suck and some of them are <laughs> awful. Um, but they're all a unique experience. Agreed. Agreed. And I can appreciate that. So, well, as we get to the point of uh, our normal episode ending, it's been a while since you've been on because you've been on vacation. Do you have any words that you would like to close out our episode with? Make sure to follow Epic Game Table Games on Facebook because we have one. And I followed today. I love that. I've mentioned it every episode, and you're like, oh, yeah, I should totally do that. I just got my Facebook. Um, wow, look at the time. No, hey, that's great. Guys, check us out on Facebook at Epic Table Games. Uh, check us out online at epictablegames.com where we have been posting more blog posts with one of our newest content curators. And you can also purchase Legend of the Pharaoh King out now on Amazon.com or through Epic Table Games. And we will see you next week. Do it through us. Don't support Amazon.
Okay, new intro. We've changed the name, and we're still using the word paladin. Paladin. I mean, it hasn't been used in the English language in about 200 years, but okay.